I was trying to think of the craziest thing anyone's ever asked me to do, and I, I don't think I really have a great one other than there was a guy that I worked with. We were both interns here in the gym, and he asked me to help him move. Not a big deal. Uh, I help lots of people move. And I remember him saying, I've got six guys that are going to be here. So you make seven, I make eight. Eight guys were on the second floor of the apartments right across the street. And I thought, well, that's not a, that bad of a deal. So I showed up that day about five minutes early. And he said, hey, you're a little early. The rest of the guys will be here in a little bit. And so we started. And about 35 minutes in, it was still he and I. I thought, well, boy, they're really running behind. And so we kept going. Well, about an hour later, I finally said, hey, where are the rest of the guys? And he's like, Man, they've started texting while we were moving, saying they're not going to be here. And I'm like, all, all six of them individually. And so it took three hours to load the truck. And then he said these words, Sammy. Now all we have to do is get it over to the other apartment and move her up to the third floor. And uh, I had to call in reinforcements at that point. So there was no way I could do that. So, well, we're going to be in John chapter 13 this evening. John chapter 13. And we're looking at, uh, you know, probably the Sunday school answer to everything. If somebody asks, the answer is Jesus. Uh, you know, who's the greatest leader? Jesus. Who's the greatest at compassion? Jesus. Who's the greatest servant? Jesus. But I think it's fascinating when we look at John chapter 13, because what happens is here in the first 20 verses, uh, we're looking at the Lord's Supper. And I love the Lord's Supper because I think of how intimate of a time it would have been. Back then... Most people built a room at the top of their house, and that's where they would gather together in the upper room. And it was kind of a, a safe place. It was a place they would spend in prayer. As a matter of fact, if you remember Daniel, right after the king made a decree, if you remember what it said, he made a decree that, that uh, you had to only pray to him. You couldn't pray to any other God. The Bible says Daniel went to his upper room, and he began praying as he always had. You think about Elijah. Remember Elijah? And he went and stayed with the lady and her son. He stayed in the upper room. It was kind of a place set apart for something really special. And so Jesus has taken the disciples into the upper room. And I mean, I can't really imagine what they're thinking because remember most of the things the disciples talked about were, hey, who's going to be the greatest among us? Which one of us is going to get to sit on your right or which one is going to get to sit on your left? They were worried about all that kind of stuff. They were kind of jockeying for position as far as who's going to be the greatest of the disciples. And really, I think it's kind of the same thing that we deal with today. More people are focused on leadership than they are servantship. As a matter of fact, I was at Domino's getting some food for my kids on Saturdays, my little girl's birthday. We had a gift card. So I go into Domino's, and when I get there, I see a sign that they're looking for delivery guys. And uh, Tim, to be honest, I mean, I know I work for you here, but it, it was really good money. And I kind of thought, really, to, to deliver pizzas, that's, that's pretty good money. You know, maybe I could do that in the evenings a couple of days a week and, you know, make some extra money because I got four kids. So I started talking to the guy, and the manager got real excited. I think he thought I was going to sign up. And he said, the best part about it is we have leadership training. And I thought to myself, even at Domino's for the delivery guy, everybody's talking about leadership. Everybody has a leadership pipeline. Everybody's talking about climbing the ladder. But the reality is God has called all of us to be servants. And I think that if we as men would focus more on serving than we do leading, it would be incredible what would happen. It's kind of like when I teach in the engaged couples class and we talk about this whole idea of ladies submitting. Ladies have an issue with that word submit 
The issue is not on their end. The issue is on our end. Because what we see too often is men are expecting something out of their wife, that submission that they're not willing to give of themselves. You see, Ephesians talks about submission of the wife, but it talks first about the submission of the husband to God. And so here's the way it's supposed to look. You've got God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the man is supposed to line himself up in submission to God and God's will, and then the woman submits to the husband, but the reality is she's just submitting to the Lord. See, she would have no issue submitting. They would have no issue with the word if we were doing what we're supposed to do. And so we talk about leadership, but really, Jesus talks a lot about being a servant. He said he didn't come to be served. He came to what? He came to serve. And so I love this in John chapter 13. They go into the upper room. And let's just start right here in verse 1 and read some of these verses together. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, now now listen to this, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Now this is so important, what happens here. Because this is what it says. It does not, it does not bring up that Judas Iscariot had already been prompted by the devil. It it doesn't bring that up later in the passage. It brings it up before Jesus ever begins to serve. It does it right at the very beginning so that we make sure we have this story correct in our minds. Judas Iscariot was already making a deal with the devil. And we have Jesus that gets up from the table. It says he lays aside his garments, he girds himself, and he's getting ready to serve them. Now, why this is so important is this. In biblical times, people did not take a bath all the time. Now, I know that's hard for you to believe, and some of you look like, no, I'm just kidding. Some of you, uh, you, we take a bath all the time. But in biblical times, they wouldn't have taken a bath all the time. But they would go occasionally take a bath. But when you came into someone's house, it was customary to wash your feet. And if it was just kind of a a mid-level home or if it was a, a poor class home, you would wash your own feet. They would provide the basin and the towel, but you would wash your own feet. If it was a house of of higher means, if they were in a different economical uh, pay grade and they made decent money and they had servants or slaves, one of them would have washed your feet for you. But here's what's so important to know. If you had 20 servants in your home, not just any servant would wash your feet if you had arrived at the house. The very lowest of the low, the bottom of the barrel, the very bottom guy, So if you got 20 servants, this would have been the guy at the very bottom. As a matter of fact, do you remember in the Old Testament when the prophet goes to pick out the king and Jesse lines all of his sons up and he never even shows him David? He goes, oh, he's just the runt. He's the little guy. In Jesse's home, he would have been the guy that was probably washing feet. Oh, he's out there taking care of sheep. And that's 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 who would take care of your, your feet. And so isn't it amazing that probably the one in this situation that should have been washing feet should have been Judas. But Jesus is the one that gets up. Now, we can look into this and say, that's great leadership, and that is true. But look at what he does in verse 5. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now that's a, that's a statement right there, but not all of you. He's, he's, he's talking about Judas right there. Not all of you are clean. For he who knew the one who was betraying him, for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? So Jesus gives, in my opinion, one of the greatest servant moves of anyone because he's washing the feet of his disciples, the guys that are under him, the guys that are learning from him. And this is what I know about Jesus. Jesus never demands anything out of you or I that he doesn't first demonstrate how to do. The disciples said, teach us how to pray. What did Jesus do? He taught them how to pray. He tells us to be baptized after we get saved. Now, Jesus didn't get saved, but a picture for us, he got baptized by John the Baptist. He tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we saw him do that everywhere he went. We saw him, we, we, we know that he tells us to honor our father and mother. We saw him honor his earthly father and mother, but at the same time, honor his heavenly father. He doesn't demand anything out of you and I that he doesn't first demonstrate. So the first thing I want us to see tonight is Jesus demonstrated serving. He demonstrated. He showed us how to serve. Now, I know as guys, are, and maybe it's just me in this room, I had this little thing called pride, and it's been a struggle since I was about six months old. I'll just be honest with you. I'm 36, so for about 36 years, I've struggled with this thing called pride. And in order to serve well, You've got to set that over on the shelf and put that to death and say, I'm not going to worry about my pride. I want to focus on the other person. This is what Jesus did. I mean, think about it. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He stepped out of heaven. He's come down. He could have lived on earth however he chose to, but he chose to come in the form of a servant, a servant even to the point of the cross. And so Jesus demonstrated serving. So I'm going to give you just three quick things under this. Number one, it's not, it's not dependent upon feelings. It's not dependent upon feelings. Now, I want you to listen to what it says in this great chapter over in Luke chapter 10. And you know this story. This is the Good Samaritan. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's telling them this story. They, uh, some people have asked the question, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus begins telling this story. It says in verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, that word compassion is important because we've seen Jesus look at people with compassion as well. But what I want you to understand is you and I are not just called to serve when we feel compassion. Because I'll be honest with you, 
you and I probably don't feel compassion a whole lot. How many times have you driven down the road and been prompted by the Holy Spirit to stop and minister to somebody on the side of the road or help somebody with a flat tire or give a couple dollars to a guy or buy a meal for somebody? And either our pride or our laziness or our busyness keeps us from doing that. And we're so busy or so prideful or whatever the case may be in that situation that it squashes that compassion the Holy Spirit was trying to put inside of us. We're going to see in a few minutes, servantship, servantship is commanded. It's not just demonstrated by Jesus. He commands us to serve. So it doesn't matter how you feel, because I'll be honest with you, if, it, if I only served my wife dependent upon how I felt at that time, she wouldn't get served all the time. You say, well, you're a terrible he- husband. No, I'm just being transparent and honest. It can't just be about a feeling. Yes, the Good Samaritan looked, in, looked on him with compassion, but your servant's heart It's not dependent upon how you feel. My dad used to say it this way. When you get saved, you forfeit your rights and feelings at that moment. In other words, when you get saved, you say, you are Lord of my life and my feelings and my rights and my desires, I'm putting them to the side and I'm choosing to follow you. I'm choosing to call you Lord. And so he calls us to serve. It's not just dependent upon our feelings. The second thing under there is it's not dependent upon our circumstances. I want you to think about this good Samaritan. He's on the road. Now he's witnessed this guy that has just been beaten. Therefore, he knows this is a dangerous road. He knows there's robbers out there. And if he takes the time to stop, he doesn't know if they're still out there in the brush waiting on the next guy. But you know what? He knows he's called to serve. He's called to love on this guy. And so his servant's heart is not dependent upon his feelings or his circumstances. Notice in verse 34 that he looked on him with compassion in verse 33 and in verse 34 and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put on him his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii. Now, a denarii would have been about a day's wages. This guy took two days' wages. Now, I don't know what you make, but two days' wages is a decent amount of money. And two days' wages is important for my family. And I would imagine it was probably important for his family. But he looked on this guy with compassion, and he served him. He takes out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. In other words, I'm going to come back through here. I'm going to check on this guy, and if I owe you anything else, I'll take care of it. That's a servant. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, honestly, Jesus asks a lot of questions, but this is one of the silliest questions he's ever asked. I mean, you you don't need to answer the question because obviously the first two guys did not serve at all. As a matter of fact, they were just worried about their own selves. And so, Serving is not dependent upon feelings. It's not dependent upon circumstances. And thirdly, serving is not dependent upon the recipient. I know a lot of people that are willing to serve if it happens in the walls of this building because they know who they're going to serve. I know people that will serve certain Bellevue Loves Memphis projects because they know they're going to go to a certain part of the city 
that they're okay entering in and they think they're going to be safe in. Can I just make a statement? It was the Kroger in Collierville that got shot up. It's not dependent upon the recipient. When God calls you to serve, you serve. God's placed people all around us. He's placed spouses. He's placed children. He's placed neighbors. He's placed people that we work with. And God has called us to serve them just like Jesus served the disciples and just like the Good Samaritan served right here. Verse 37 of that Luke chapter 10 passage says, And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him, then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. Jesus has told them exactly what to do. Love on people. Extend compassion to them. If it costs you something, that's okay. He then asks him, which one was the servant in this story? They said the third guy. And Jesus says to them, go and do likewise. If we could take any phrase that we look at tonight out of the scripture and just say, this is what we want to hold on to, I would ask you to hold on to this. Jesus is saying to each one of us, go and do likewise. You got a wife at home? There's been a little friction lately? Or there's been some struggles or there's been some disagreements or there's been some things that you're working through? Go home and serve her. Go home and serve her. Don't go home tonight thinking you're going to try to win the argument or win the battle or get your own way. Go home and serve her. The Bible tells us we're to love her like Christ loves the church and everything I see about Jesus is sacrificial. He steps out of heaven a perfect place. He comes to earth and he's born in a manger to two people he knew was going to be a struggle because they weren't even married at the time when she first got pregnant. And then he lives this life where he doesn't even have a home to lay his head on. He's traveling around, he's preaching, he's getting kicked out of places, people are making fun of him. He comes to the end of his life, he could have written the story however he wanted, and yet he gets brutally beaten, he's put upon a cross. All of these things, everything I see from Jesus, he was sacrificial. He served in every aspect of his being, in physical being. And I would ask you this, because I've asked myself this question this a hundred times this week. How am I serving the people around me? Three, about three days a week, I pray for the staff that I get to work with just in our adult ministry. Tim and I work in the same area. And so I, I pray for each one of them by name. And, and, and one of the things that I've been praying the last couple weeks is, is how am I serving those people? Those men that I'm working with, those women that I'm working with. I know we're a team, but how am I serving them? I've been asking myself this question lately. How have I been serving my wife? You want to know one that's really struck me really hard? A sign went up in the house across the street from me that said for sale. I saw some cars over there that hadn't been over there before. So I walked across and knocked on the door, and there were some people in there I had never seen before. And I said, hey, where's Miss So-and-so? And they said, well, she passed away. And she was an elderly lady, and she passed away due to COVID about three months ago. You know what question I asked myself? What did I do to serve her? You know what I asked myself about the guy that's on the right to me that I know for a fact, I know for a fact does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ because he's told me? What am I doing to serve him? Because I don't see Jesus any better than when I see someone serve. Philip Hardy last week told me 
we had a bunch of guys show up on Saturday for the change in the oil and taking care of all the ladies' cars. He said he's got a dozen more guys on a list. And you know why those guys are so passionate? Because when they get together and they serve, it's, there's nothing more encouraging. Yes, they're blessing a bunch of people, but those guys walk away from there encouraged and ready to go serve. Because when you see someone serve, you see Jesus. So I want us to take it back to the table for a minute, and I want to twist it just a little bit because serving, I don't know if you realize this, can be difficult. So I want us to answer this question around the table. Why is serving sometimes difficult even when it is for a loved one? Why is serving sometimes difficult even when it is for a loved one? Ready, set, go. All right, guys. Sounds like good discussion around the table. We talked in the first part about how Jesus demonstrated serving. The second thing I want us to talk about, and I alluded to it, is Jesus commanded serving. He commanded serving. So notice what happens when he gets up. It says, um, or, uh, in verse 12, he says, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass. So then when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. I don't think I had all those verses on the screen because uh, I was going to stop at 17, but it's just so good I had to read all the way through the end. Jesus literally says to them, go and do likewise. You've seen me wash feet, now you go and wash feet. You've seen me serve, now you go and serve. Now, I just think it's very interesting. We've got the 12 disciples up here. They're in the upper room. They have no idea what's coming next. They're getting ready to exit and go to the garden. You know what happens in the garden. Jesus tells them, can't you just pray with me for an hour? They just keep falling asleep. I mean, they can't even stay awake. It's like Jesus said, seriously? You can't pray for one hour? You can't, you can't stay awake for one hour? Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever tried to pray for a whole hour. It's difficult. If you don't have a plan and you don't have it laid out, praying for an hour. My dad used to pastor a church in Alabama. There was a little room to the right of the uh, pulpit area that was like a little dressing room for the baptistry. Well, they decided to change and put that room further back behind the baptistry. And so there was a big debate. You know, in a small church, you got a business meeting about everything. I mean, everything. You want to paint a door, you better have two business meetings. And so there was a big discussion on what we're going to do with this room. And one of the deacons makes the motion that we turn this into a prayer room. And every time the word is being preached from the pulpit, we would fill the room with someone that would be praying from start to finish. I thought it was a great idea. So they had this sign-up sheet. And so my dad was really excited about it as the pastor. And, and he would go and check the sheet to see how he was signed up. And 
you know, it had people signed up for just a couple services all, all, you know, for like three to six months. And so my mom and I started putting our names in there and we started going there to pray. I remember as a 15-year-old boy going in there for the first time thinking, you know, hour and 20 minutes, David, I'll knock this out, it'll be done. I know I slept because a deacon came in and woke me up when it was over, okay? And uh, the next week, my mom went in there and when she came out, I said, how'd it go? She said, I'm not gonna lie, I nodded off a couple times. So the next week was my turn again and I did the standing up, you know, if I, I knew if I sat down, I was, gonna, I was gonna fall asleep. So I stood up and I'm pretty sure I slept standing up, okay? I had to have a plan. And so I brought people's names there and, and, and laid it all out so that I, I prayed. But I want you to think about this. Jesus is in the upper room. He's with these knuckleheads that can't even stay awake for an hour. Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus is not worried about his circumstances. He's not worrying about who he's talking to because you think about this. He's got 12 disciples, in the next 12 hours, think about this. One of them is going to betray Jesus, Judas. He's going to kiss him on the cheek and hand him over. And he's going to be killed. So one of them's going to betray him. Another one of them's going to deny him, Peter. Peter's going to say three times, I don't even know the guy. You know what the other 10 did? They ran away. I mean, these are, the, these are your 12 dudes. These are your guys. These are the guys you've invested in for three years. And now the moment that you need them the most, one of them betrays you, one of them denies you, and the other 10, runs, other 10 ran away. And what does Jesus do? He serves them. He washes their feet. Because, see, it was not about circumstances. It was not about who he was serving. It was the fact that he had been called to serve. I would submit to you, you are called to serve the people around you. If you're the CEO of a company, you're called to serve. If you've got a bunch of employees that work underneath you, you're called to serve. And it may look different for everyone, but you're called to serve. Jesus served. So Jesus commanded serving. Two things under there. Number one, it's dependent upon an obedient attitude. Our serving is dependent upon an obedient attitude. The Father had sent Jesus the Son to earth for a specific purpose, not to be served, but to serve. So what does Jesus do? He goes down and he serves. He heals people. He gives people stuff. He feeds people. He raises people from the dead. You say, I can't do any of those things. No, we can't raise anybody from the dead. We can't heal anybody. But I tell you what, we can get on our knees and we can pray for God's healing. I think more people would be healed if more people would pray. I think we'd have less people having issues and problems if the people around them that were stronger in their faith would stand up and serve. I think you and I could minister to this city in an incredible way if we would begin to put on our spiritual radar to see who around us needs to be served. And by the way, when I put down an obedient attitude, I couldn't help but think of my four children. We have a saying in our home, Obedience is three things. It's three things. Obedience is doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with the right heart attitude. And some of you may have that same thing in your home. I know we, it's not original to us. We found it somewhere. But here's the bottom line. If I tell you to take out the trash and you take it out next week, that's not obeying. But dad, I took the trash out, not when I told you to. Or if you take the trash out when I tell you to, but you got a bad attitude and you're stomping out of the house, that's not obedience. That's partial obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And I tell you to take the trash out, you take the trash out. 
Now, I've got some smart aleck kids. They like to look at me and smile real big and sing along the way as if they're really, really happy about it. So we got to work on that too. But I think when Jesus served them, can you imagine getting ready to know what's happening to you? You're getting ready to have your beard plucked out. They're going to pull your hair out. And by the way, Jesus felt all the physical things you and I feel. He hit his thumb with a hammer before. He had cut himself before. And he knew he was getting ready to have 39 lashes. He knew all that. And yet he served. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A suggestion. You want to know where your love at is with the Lord? You want to know how deep your love for the Lord is? Ask yourself this question. Who am I serving? Because if you love him, you will serve. You will keep his commandments. So it's dependent upon an obedient attitude. And number two, it's dependent upon a loving heart. A loving heart. I love this. I love it. When Jesus comes into your life, he changes you. Major Ian Thomas one time said, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, he changes your mind, will, and emotions. That's every aspect of your being. That's the way you think. That's the way you act. That's the way you talk. That's everything. He changes all of you. Bible says what in 2 Corinthians? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He puts a new song in your hearts, what the book of Psalms tells us. And it comes out of our mouth. And it comes from a different heart. He puts within us something different. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, was Jesus. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. See, there comes a point where it's not just, I have to serve because I'm told to. It's I'm going to serve because I want to. And that's when Jesus does a heart transformation. When he begins to change the way we think and the way we think here. It's no longer a duty. It's something we get to do. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. When I was growing up and my dad told me we're supposed to read the Bible every day, it was a duty. And early on, even in my 20s, when I was trying to read the Bible every day, it was a duty. It was something I was checking off a list. I'll be honest with you, at 36 years old, and having been do, doing this for almost 30 years, I can tell you this. I get to wake up in the morning and read God's Word. Now, it's not that way every day. There's struggles. But I get to. It's a heart change. So I would say to you, God... Jesus demonstrated a servant's heart. He commands a servant's heart. What does your heart look like? Who are you serving? So around your table over the next few minutes, I would ask you this. What is your next step? What is your next step? I think I've told this story when we had this class a couple years ago. But I'm going to tell it again because I think what it does here at the end is it ties it all together. My father, I told you, pastored a little church in Talladega, Alabama. Now, if you're from Talladega, you say Talladega. But I'm telling you, there's an E in there, okay? It's Talladega, all right? And I lived about half a mile to three-quarters of a mile from Talladega Speedway. If you ever, anybody watch NASCAR, okay, I could open my window and I could listen to the race, okay? That's how close we were to that thing. So he had this little church a couple miles from the speedway, and we had one of the finest deacons I've ever met in my life. 
Brother James Kent. Brother James was 78 years old at the time. He would do more in serving in one week, and, and please don't be offended by this, than most of you or I will this whole year. I've seen him on top of widows' houses, putting up shingles at 78 years old. I've seen him do all kinds of things. There was a meeting at the church because there was an old shed out back that held all of the lawn equipment for the church. And to be honest with you, that little building had become dilapidated, and it was really an eyesore. And so what we wanted to do was tear that building down and put up a newer, nicer shed, if you will, to hold all the lawn equipment. What most people didn't realize is James Kent and his father had built that shed 50 years ago. And so he was opposed to tearing it down. He, just, he made the motion that out of his own pocket, he would pay to redo the front of it, put some new siding up, paint everything, and leave the building as is. But it went to a vote for the church. And so the church voted, and all but James Kent's family voted to tear that building down. And I remember looking at Mr. James and feeling sorry for him. And so we made a decision that instead of hiring out the demolition for the shed, that some of the men in the church would come up there on Saturday and we would tear that building down and then we would hire someone to build the new one. We were going to meet at 9, so my father and I were going to get there at about 7.30 to set some stuff up and make sure everything was good and we were ready to go, get some waters out there and all that kind of stuff. We arrived at 7.30. Half the shed was down. And James Kent came walking from behind the shed. And I will never forget, my father walked up to James Kent, 78 years old. He's holding a crowbar in one hand, a hammer in the other, sweaty head to toe, dirt everywhere. And he put his hand on his shoulder and he said, Brother James, I thought you didn't want to tear this building down. He said, I didn't. But this is what the church voted on. And I'm for the church. Can I just make a statement? It wasn't about James's feelings wasn't about what he wanted. It was about what God wanted. And he served. So I would ask you the question, who are you serving? How are you serving? And what is your next step as far as serving goes?